Hi, I'm Eli. I am a higher education professional, struggling creative person, proud marching band alumnus, and general sports nerd. Hi, I'm Nick. I'm a music educator, a drum corps nerd, and a band alumni as well. We've been best friends for 10 years, and we've been doing marching band all of our lives. And during that time, we've heard a lot of college fight songs. A lot of them. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. Some of them are exceptionally average. Some we really love. Some of them really, really hate. And we're on a journey to listen to them all. And hopefully, make fun of them. We think we're funny. So, join us as we go on a journey to discover if we hate your fight song. Go for it. Hi! Welcome back to We Hate Your Fight Song. I'm Eli. And I'm Nick. You okay, Nick? (laughs) Yes. I'd like to point out that since we are a small podcast right now, that one of the two of us um, has to do the editing and... That person who has to do the editing may or may not hate people running up and yelling into the microphone. <laughs> the it person... definitely won't make things hard for that person. Spoiler, the person is me. You started it. I mean, you're the one who ran up first. So. No, I, I did. I did. I know. I know. It's I'm a... lovely editing. I'm a bad friend. I'm aware. Wait, if you're editing, does that mean I can like ask for wacky sounds to be inserted in places? And you'll do those? I mean, you can ask. I can't promise that it's going to happen. Like, if I ask for, like, a plate corn right now and leave space right here, would it work? I really hope that worked. Otherwise, it's just going to be an awkward silence and we seem like we're more crazy than we actually are. Anywho, yeah. our, our listeners are here for one reason. And yes. probably because... This is a big name to start out with, isn't it? <laughs> this is a big name. I was trying to remember what the hint I gave was last week, and I do not remember at all. Did you give a hint? I gave a hint. Did you write I, it down? Nope, apparently not. I was looking through my notes trying to figure out if I had it. We gave you some sort of hint. I believe it and... involved Sousa saying that this is one of the greatest fight songs ever written. Sure. Some of you probably got that. Some of you probably didn't. Some of you are probably just as confused as we are right now about, wait, you guys said something last episode? Yeah, but that brings us to our topic for today. That does. what, Eli? This brings us to the University of Michigan. Ooh. All so right. hail to the victors, right? Well, just the victors. Oh, singular. Uh, I will say going into this, by the way, if you remember our topic, lists this fill at number four for myself. Yeah, I have some weird feelings about this fight song after doing some research. Alright, so, our little blurb to get started today, located in Ann Arbor, west of Detroit. The University of Michigan is widely considered to be one of the United States' finest public universities, as well as home to some of the most storied and prestigious athletic programs in American sports history. However, their past is often complicated by their own revisions of their histories and narratives, including of their fight song, which is widely considered to be one of the greatest of all time. Interesting. So you mean they've actually changed it, or have they just, like, rearranged it? Or do you know? Oh, we'll get to it. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. It's all right, but I'm like, oh, oh, it, it gets complicated real fast. I am very intrigued. All right. So, just 
quick quick kind of overview of the formation of how the University of Michigan came to be. And this one was a doozy, and I had to leave, even though I talked about my own rules about trying not to get in the weeds about higher ed stuff. Oh my god, it was so ridiculous that I had to include some of it because it was nuts. Ooh. All right. So, oh, also, by the way, we'll also have our work cited given in the liner notes, so you can feel free to check out any of these links. A lot of it is sourced from Wikipedia, because I am not a... I'm going to work smart, not hard. Um, but for any some some of the more specific information, I will be including links to that in the uh, Don't, in the don't listen notes. to them when they say don't use Wikipedia as a source. It's actually a pretty decent source now. Yeah, I was going to say, oh, you can use it as a jumping-off point, but never cite it directly. It's like looking go. into the sun. Don't ever do it. Don't ever look directly at the sun, unless yeah. it's an eclipse. Then, I mean, even then, you're still not supposed to. Okay, well, tell okay. us what you yeah. learned from right. our great source. All right, so the origin of the University of Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> God damn. <laughs> oh, I hate you. All right. As early as 1806, there were requests for lands specifically for building a college from the territorial governors and judges who ran the Michigan Territory, which was actually just established the year before. There had been some talking back to, back and forth, and in 1817, Chief Justice Augustus B. Woodward, a, a fancy gentleman, I assume. Yeah. Chief Justice Woodward created an act establishing a, oh my god, I hate this word so much, Catholopemistad... Or University of Michigania, a university organized into 13 different professorships following his own classification system he had published the year before. So he just didn't want to conform to mainstream uh, systems. Is kind of Pretty much. He just said, like, we're establishing this university and it's going to be based off of my research. I question this dude. Is it because his name was so fancy and... Unnecessary. Is that <laughs> he's, why he's doing this? He's got big fancy name energy. Is that the way? Is that why he's the way he is? Why? Why are you the way you choose to be? Hmm. So, so for that word. So the word I think I butchered it the very first time. What, what no, hold on. Mean? I'm putting an extra T in there. Cathol epistemian. There we go. Oh. Cathol epistemian. There we go. But like, what does that even mean? I had to break down the etymology. I had to go get my Latin dictionary. Um, oh. And then I, I then I was up shit creek without a paddle because it was all Greek. So, <laughs> all right. So, etymology. Cathol from universal. Um, Catholic, right? Um, episteme. Uh, Greek word for knowledge, um, like epistemology. Um, Iad, which means concerned or connected, like an Olympiad, like the time period around the Olympics, right? So, from Wikipedia directly. He invented names for you for these using a mix of Greek and Latin so they can be engrafted without variation into every modern language. So these were the subjects that they initially wanted to study. And I'm not even okay. going to go into the um, the complexity of what it was. This is where I draw the line. So I have more notes about it. It's not even worth getting into. Basically, the entire system was almost establishing kind of like a knowledgeocracy. So the things that they put under their purview were establishing colleges, academies, schools, libraries, museums, Athenians, which are kind of just like schools, um, botanical gardens, labs, other useful scientific and literary institutions, and also being able to appoint all the directors and curators and instructors across any part of Michigan under this model. 
Interesting. Did it, it did it take off? It was signed into law. Okay. Um I will keep my mouth shut. Yeah. So it was so that act was signed into law in 1817 in August. Um they've put down the, the basically the first stuff for the university's first building in late September in Detroit. And they basically had a primary school, so you know, like a normal like basically K through eight, and like a full on like classical, like kind of liberal artsy academy for like high school students functioning within the year. However, no university. Meanwhile, in the Treaty of Fort Meigs the same year pretty much just a month before, 2,000 acres of lands were ceded by the Chippewa, Ottawa, and Potawatomi tribes to the, quote-unquote, college at Detroit for either use or sale. No college had been officially created yet, so the next month, the creation of the first college of Michigan, yet they hadn't even made a college yet, um, was decreed. Despite this, no college was ever organized. But based off of what historic evidence remains, it's likely that the land that was ceded for that was actually sold. Remember that term um, that I can't pronounce, the Catol Epimistia? Yes. Uh, yep. Basically, this basically got a lot of heat, and everybody else hated it, too. Um, the governor literally referred to it as the Cathol What's-Its-Name, and thought it to be a, quote, pedantic and uncouth name. While one of the justices of the Michigan um, Supreme Court said it was, quote, neither Greek, Latin, nor English, but merely a piece of language gone mad. Seems about right, if we're being honest. Yeah. You can see why with my brain about what I like, why I had to keep a lot of this in, because this is all very hilarious and funny to me. Yeah. So in 1921, a new act was passed that created, that kind of changed the name from the University of Michigania to the University of Michigan, and then created a board of trustees with few other changes to the structure. It oversaw, you know, the primary school and a couple other of the academies, but also did no work to create an actual university. Um, by 1827, neither of the two other schools were operating and the building in Detroit was leased out to um, other parties. And at that point, basically the University of Michigan ceased to exist except on paper. Cut to 1835. Michigan is getting prepared to preparing to um, be admitted as a state, um, having their constitutional convention, although they didn't become a state until about two years later after the resolution of the Toledo War with Ohio. We'll, we'll come back to what that was about. So basically as a part of the Organic Act of 1837, basically they had to create all their state offices and along with that, the University of Michigan was officially created. A group of businessmen had set aside land in the village of Ann Arbor, which was initially planned to possibly be the new state capital when they ended up settling on Lansing. Um, they offered it for sale by use for the university. A second act passed um, within a couple days um, that called for the university to be officially be established in Ann Arbor. And there we go. That's kind of the origin of the modern uh, University of Michigan. So it took. So the University of Michigan itself claims that they were founded in 1817. I mean, kind of. This I is guess. one one of many times that the University of Michigan kind of fudges its own history. Ah, this is, you mean this is going to be a recurring theme? Oh, this is a pattern for Michigan. Especially with some of the stuff going on right now in this era of Michigan history for sports. Nah. Nah. They're they're nothing but clean. 
That's why won. That's why they won their championship in Houston. Only clean things happen in Houston. Well, again, well, keep just just all the things I'm telling you right now. Just just keep under your hat. Just you know, we're, there's reasons that I'm including them. So the first classes at the University of Michigan were held in 1841. They had their first commencement ceremony, so their first graduates in 1845. The medical school at the University of Michigan was also founded in, well, not also, but was founded in 1848. And Michigan actually opened the first university-owned hospital in the U.S. in 1869. From 1871 to 1909, President James B. Angle, or Angel, um, aggressively expanded the university's curriculum to include and expand professional studies in dentistry, architecture, engineering, government, and medicine. At that point, um, U of M um, also began to attract renowned faculty, including pragmatist philosopher John Dewey, who I actively studied. Um, again, I wrote out there. Um, Is he the Dewey Decimal System? No, different Dewey. Too many I think. Nah, you're probably right. It's, it's been a while. I, I'm pretty sure they're different Deweys. Again, that president actually plays into our story in a little bit, so stay tuned. The 1920s saw Michigan um, solidify, you know, kind of its international research initiatives, and during that decade, also really solidified its position as a prominent research university. Um, President Marion Leroy Burton raised admission standards during that time and also sought to heighten the academic rigors of the university's courses while cracking down on the very normal academic life of college students. Drinking, debauchery, and dumbass behavior. The three D's that still govern college behavior every, to this day. Every college in the history of ever. Yeah. The 1930s saw a crackdown on the consumption of alcohol and the rowdiness that had characterized student life to this day. Um, in case you can't tell, um, little narrator voice, um, President Burton did not um, stop the party at Michigan. And President 19- Burton tried a good try, but college prevails again. Yeah. It's almost like maybe putting a bunch of 18, 19 year olds leads in one small area leads to dumb behavior. We are we are currently locking eyes in a very awkward manner. Yeah. Right. No commentary. No that. comment. Yep. All right. So during World War II, the university grew into a troop research powerhouse, undertaking a lot of initiatives um, for the U.S. Navy and also contributing to weapons development. Um, by 1950, university enrollment had reached um, 21,000. Nice number for that. From Wikipedia, the university entered the national spotlight over the first ever panty raid in 1952, an event cheered on by hundreds of students and chronicled by the national press, including Life magazine. So, so like, was this was this like a secret event that just kind of happened, or did they like advertise that they were doing this? Well, okay, so the the panty raid for the civilized among us. Um, the civilized. Yeah, who don't do this because it's 2024. Um, basically, there was a tradition, especially when I think there's a lot of mysticism about, you know, like sex in United States society, mm-hmm. of basically breaking into someone's, um, basically breaking into female dorms, grabbing their underwear, and basically leaving with it. Yeah. Um, said it was, like, covered by the news. Yeah. So, I mean, they knew, like... Oh, they're doing it tonight. Come on, get a camera crew. Let's. I, oh no! I mean, it's more. Most of the time, it's like it's it's. I mean, and this is before TV, right? Like, so this That's is true. like it pops up in the newspaper like three days later. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, there was just oh, confusion on that. Like, yeah. if it's supposed to be a secret. Then how did they? Do oh it? no no no! It's not like panty raid tonight. News at eleven. Like it's not like that. <laughs> it's more like oh by the way there was a panty raid. Okay. Continue. <laughs> 
Well, okay. So do you, so do you remember how I said that um, the first ever panty raid in 1952, right? Yeah. Except it's not. The first uh, panty raid was conducted in the state of Illinois. What's up? Um, at Augustana College. Woo! However, the Michigan incident is widely considered to be the second incident that ever happened and the, what made the tradition, and I use the tra- term tradition loosely, mainstream. Man, Michigan, so that's one take against Michigan. One time they lied. Well, actually two if we're thinking about the 1817 thing. Yeah, I forgot about that. But yeah, no. Okay. I'm starting to distrust them as an institution. I also feel like I'm getting that date wrong. Luckily, there will be no more blows to that credibility, I'm sure. No. Not at all. But let's focus on the modern University of Michigan, shall we? So the modern University of Michigan houses 16 schools and colleges. It currently has an enrollment of 52,000 for the fall 2023 semester at the Ann Arbor Camp campus. Um, It also has um, supplementary campuses in Dearborn and in Flint. Um, It supports schools of dentistry, law, medicine, nursing, and pharmacy. Michigan is a founding member of the Association of American Universities, who are all considered to be industry leaders and research institutions. Now, I'm going to throw a fun fact out here, if I want to see if you remember it. All members of the Big Ten are members of the AAU, except one. Who is the one that left? And even then, they're a former member. Um, can I request a hint? We know someone who went there. Nebraska. Yep. Wow. Nebraska left right before they joined the Big Ten. Really? Yeah. Which is ironic because, yeah, okay. It was partially because I think they were on the verge of actually getting kicked out. Oh. Seems like not a good thing. Yeah, Nebraska is interesting. Um, also, Michigan is considered to be a public Ivy, so a public institution that offers the education of the level of an Ivy League college, and was also part of the inaugural class of the public Ivies in 1985. Cool. Yeah. I did not realize that was an actual thing. They Very are things. Hmm. All right. Any questions before we move on to pageantry? No, I think that's it for right now. I'm ready to get into pageantry and start learning about some some of what I am here for. All right, so pageantry. So the colors of the University of Michigan are azure, blue, and maize, or blue and yellow if you're a normal person. Like most of us, I blue and yellow is satisfactory to me. So in 1867, um, maize and blue as I roll my eyes, were voted to be the class colors. Um, the president, um, sorry, the Board of Regents made them the official colors of the U of M. U of M. Of U M. I know, as I was say, when I said U of M, I was like, well, U M. In 1912. Between um, 1867 and 1912, there were stark differences in the shades of blue and yellow used. Athletics teams used darker colors, while, um, you know, kind of the regular people used, like, whatever light versions of blue they could get their hand on, just as long as they were blue and yellow, right? That combo. Ultimately, the athletics palette won out and has remained consistent ever since formal adoption in 1912. Okay. Well, at least they agreed. I mean, they got there eventually. Now, this is where I started doing research, and I started laughing really hard one time at work because this was so ridiculous here. All right, so, as we all know, the mascot of the University of Michigan is... A Wolverine! Wolverines! Woo! 
All right. So how did they get the name of the Wolverines, right? So yeah. there's a lot of different thoughts about it. Um, it seems to relate to that Toledo War, right? All right. So remember how I said that Michigan couldn't become a state until they basically got their shit sorted out with Ohio? Yeah. All right. So there was a border dispute called the Toledo War. Basically, it was basically who's going to have Toledo? Nobody wants it. That's what I think. And I've been to Toledo. I'm like, nobody wants that. But back in the day, it was a real big thing. During this time, they argued over the state line. And at some point, Michiganders began to be called Wolverines. It's very unclear who gave who the nickname. Was it Michigan who gave themselves the nickname, you know, based off their, you know, tenacity and strength? Or did Ohio give them the nickname? Basically in reference to kind of being a glutton, you know, being overly aggressive and unnecessarily aggressive. It's probably a little from column A, a little from column B. The thing, though, is that Ohio is the Buckeye State and Ohio State uses the Buckeyes. So this definitely makes sense to just call yourself... Like, the, I'm getting that, because I can never find out when did Michigan formally adopt the Wolverines nickname, and I think it just kind of happened. They, somebody called them it, or they called themselves it, and you know what? That's what we all agree on. We don't need to say a year. And I think it just happened. It existed. It's like the world. It just started existing. God said, let Michigan just be called the Wolverines. And that was it. Never looked back. No need to. <laughs> Careful, don't tell Michigan that we said that, or else they're going to add that into their stuff. That, I would love to see us change that. So Michigan does not have a formal mascot, either anthropomorphic or live, or, you know, a symbolic representation. Okay, this is where it got really funny to me. Mainly because of the numerous failed attempts to have a live Wolverine as a mascot. Well, that's why it failed. Why would you want a live mascot of a right. Wolverine? Okay, so for people who don't know what a Wolverine is, first off, look it up. Um, so it's basically just a really, really, really angry badger. E- even angrier than a normal badger. Like, and it badgers is, are angry. Badgers are angry. This thing is, like, horrifying. Like, most... Like, it is considered to be one of, like, the the worst, like, animals on the planet. Like, in just aggressiveness and over, like, hostility. So, from Wikipedia, and this was the quote that got me laughing so hard, I, I started crying at work. Um, okay. In 1923, after seeing the University of Wisconsin football team carry live badgers at games, the <laughs> University of Michigan athletic director and football coach Fielding H. Yost decided to procure a Wolverine. Despite writing letters to 68 trappers, Yost was una- reportedly unable to find one. Gee, I wonder why. I wonder why. Like, can, okay, can you imagine calling 68 people and not having them return your call? Wouldn't you eventually get the idea of, hey, maybe this is a really bad idea? One would think. I'm also confused as to what is he doing where he has the time to be able to do this. It was the 20s, man. But, like, is it, wasn't he a coach? What is he coaching? It's the it's the Wolverines. They coach themselves. They're Michigan men. I, I guess. I don't know. That seems... So, so he really tried to get a live badger. He really tried to get a, a live Wolverine. Or sorry, Wolverine. Well, because Wisconsin, of course, like most things in the Big Ten, they saw another school doing it and got real pissy. And then wanted to steal it. Yeah. 
So Good. they they did get their hands on a stuffed Wolverine in 1924, and they took it that okay, out. Okay, well, good yeah. enough. Uh, they named it Biff, and they like to do like little play acting, like pretending like, oh my god, it's pulling against the leash. Ah! Right. I hope this was their football team to invent. Yeah, I hope so. Ah! 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 All right, so you you ready for it to get real stupid? Wait, it wasn't already real stupid? Nope. In 1927, um, remember, there's a depression coming in a couple years. The Detroit Zoo acquired 10 wolverines from Alaska. Yo struck a deal with the zoo to have two of the wolverines transported to Ann Arbor on football Saturdays. The two wolverines were nicknamed Biff and Benny and were paraded around the stadium during football games. That seems dangerous. Like, actually dangerous. All right, would you... Would you like to hear my 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 next sentence that I wrote? Yes. However, because it is a goddamn Wolverine, Biff and Benny started to become too vicious to be handled by mere Michigan men. The practice of bringing Biff and Benny into the stadium ended after just one season. Um, one of the Wolverines, Biff, was put into a cage at the University of Michigan Zoo from National Geographic. Yost had not accounted for the rapid growth or ferocity of the animals, and when his players were no longer willing to carry the wolverines around the stadium, one live mascot, Biff, was turned over to the University of Michigan's zoo so that the students would be able to visit and be inspired by him. I don't know about you, but I don't think I would necessarily be inspired by a wolverine, but to each their own, I guess. Those guys, they're brutal. Um, although most report um, sources report that Biff and Benny were shown in the stadium for only one year, the Bentley Historical Library, who has some great research on this, uh, claims that they were brought to the stadium for a number of years. Um, it's not noted how long that would be, though. Uh, that same article also states that Biff and Benny eventually became too vicious to remain on campus and removed to the Detroit Zoo. They don't have any evidence that they were ever housed at the University of Michigan. Interesting. So, so it's very kind of unclear When exactly the? All we know is that they were there for some time and then they left. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious what a zoo does with Wolverine. I think they just let him sit there and be angry. Basically, Michigan at that point has never had another live. They've never they never done a suited mascot. They've never done a. It's like they've never done anything after that. Probably um, for the best at this. point. Yeah. Um, in the 1980s, students did campaign to establish a new Wolverine mascot. Didn't really go anywhere. I couldn't find a ton of research about it. Um, I'll post what I have, but there wasn't a ton. Um, and in 2011, the athletic director at the time did tease the idea of revisiting the idea of having an actual mascot. However, none of these attempts have been successful. And they're while they're called the Wolverines, there's never been a Wolverine mascot. Probably for the best, if we're being honest. Yeah. Um. I, one article I read did basically say one of they think that one of the biggest deterrents was that for a long time people didn't know what wolverines looked like, and <laughs> once they found out what they looked like, they're like, "Oh God, no!" They have no. They don't want any of that now. <laughs> yeah. Um. In in its place, of course, the University of Michigan uses the block M. Um. The block M itself dates back to the late 1800s, but did not um get really involved in athletics until 1907. And they actually did one of those things where you kind of like, you know, do like the, like kind of like raise a flag or like raise the cards to make something. They made yeah. the block M and then it's kind of stuck ever since. Well, that's kind of 
That's kind of a nice little history on that. I'm going to bet they're probably the oldest adoption of a block letter. We'll find out as we do more research. Yeah. All right. So athletics history, I'll try to go through this fast because, of course, they've they've got a lot because they've been around forever. All right. So they were a founding member of the Big Ten, um, initial charter member of the conference um, when it was called the Western Conference. Another fun fact, who is the only full member of the Big Ten to exit the conference? Am I going to get it if I think about it? Maybe. Maybe? Maybe. Big Ten to leave. The only full member to leave out of the Big Ten. Um, I'm, do you want a hint? Yeah, a hint would be good. They are no longer in Division One sports. Then I'm definitely not going to get it. All right, we'll save it for that episode then. Because we will cover them. Because they also have another important part in fight song history. Hmm. All right, so their first varsity team that they um, ever fielded was baseball. Um, founded right um, in 1865-66 season. I have an article I'll link to for that one about the beginning of uh, Michigan baseball. Um, they do now sponsor um, 29 overall sports, 14 men and 15 women's. Uh, for men's sports, they sponsor baseball, basketball, cross-country, football, golf, gymnastics, ice hockey, lacrosse, soccer. Um, oh, God. Hold on. Now my reading skills. There we go. Swimming, diving, tennis, track and field, and wrestling. For women's sports, they sponsor basketball, cross-country, field hockey, golf, gymnastics, lacrosse, rowing, soccer, softball, swimming and diving, tennis, track and field, and volleyball. Nice little variety on both sides, really. Yeah. Still one of the bigger programs I think we've ever looked at um, for how many sports are overall covered. In 13 of the previous 22 years, um, uh, dated back to about uh, 2022, Michigan has followed and uh, finished in the top five of the of the NACTA Directors Cup, which is basically for the um, athletic directors, basically how awesome are you overall at college sports? Um, so they finished in the top five for last, it's like, last couple of years, um, also has finished with within the top 10 for 22 of the awards 28 seasons uh, through 2022. That's pretty impressive, actually. Yeah, that's, hard to, that's hard to do. Yeah, basically fourth best nationally over that time. Basically, so well-rounded all around, essentially. Like, everyone's, yeah. like, if they field a team in it, they are probably good. All right, so... Overall, they have 39 NCAA team championships. Um, their oldest championship is 1901 football, as much as I roll my eyes about how football has historically been, had its championships decided. Um, I so I think it's a good system. Eli does not. I do not. We'll, we'll have to talk about it at some point. Um, excluding football, their oldest championship is 1923 for men's track and field. Their most recent title is 2024 football. And excluding football, because football is jank as far as it comes to uh, titles, um, 2014 men's gymnastics. That's, that's kind of an odd one. You don't hear that too much. Yeah. But. Most titles um, overall um, are from their swim, uh, for swimming. Okay. I do have a breakdown. I might even include it um, and show it to you off, off to you later. Um, for football, they've won the um, national, uh, basically the national team championships uh, 12 times. Okay. As far as it comes to, uh, it's like, and this is our last little bit about athletics. So Michigan's official Division One na- uh, national championship. So official ones, not the football ones, because football is not official. Um, in, in the NCAA, it's not. They don't. They don't count it. No. Continue. 
They don't count it. They've come from 11 different sports. This broad-based success is the fifth most in the NCAA record book. Only UCLA, Stanford, USC, and Texas have more diverse championship histories than the Wolverines. Interesting. Yeah. I knew that. You ready to talk band? I am ready for band. Band All right. Hot. (laughs) Band me up. So, the University of Michigan has band history dating back to the mid-1800s. Um, there are evidences of bands in 1844 and 1859. However, there's no continuous history um, before or after those bands. So basically, they existed at some point, but you can't tie them back to the Michigan Marching Band as it exists now. Um, the university band uh, for the University of Michigan was formed in 1896. It started with 22 members. For If you want some reference, the oldest continuous university band, or so they claim, because this Michigan episode made me not trust any school and how they talk about themselves, started in 1845 at Notre Dame. So Notre Dame is the one that claims the longest continuous history of having a, a band program that's been running. And yeah. we see how great it's been for them. Yeah. Nothing but greatness there. Remember that president I was talking about? Um, Angle or Angel? Because I can't figure out how to pronounce it. So yeah. the university president um, granted basically the band's request for rehearsal space in room A of University Hall. And by 1898, they were being referred to as the Michigan Band and started performing at football games. Basically, kind of being its own independent organization, it was officially incorporated and became university sanctioned in 1929. Do you want to have a fun one? I would love a fun one. All right. Directly from Wikipedia, during the Michigan-Ohio State football game in 1932, the Michigan Marching Band first performed a script Ohio formation. That field formation was subsequently embellished by Ohio State University Marching Band, which continues to perform a similar field routine today. So according, they started the Script Ohio. According to Michigan, they invented Script Ohio. But why Why did they write out Ohio on the field? Let's remember that, one, these two states are touching each other and do not like each other, and two, Michigan likes to lie. But again, like, even if even if they're not lying, what was the logic of spelling out your rival school's game on the field? So, I actually get this one. Do so, I yeah. Don't. So, did you ever play during high school marching man your team's fight song, like the opposing team's fight song? No. Okay, we did it at our high school. It was to show up the school that was visiting, basically to say we can play it better than your band. So dumb. We spent sometimes more time working on their fight songs than we did our own fight song. So stupid. I'm so, not, not going to pretend like that's not. That is ridiculous. But So I was say, so I get it. Um, you just want to show that my marching band is better than your marching band. Like, I, I totally get that one. Okay. So I'm, I'm keeping also track of this one because it specifically mentioned alumni bands. Um, okay. Basically, their first alumni band uh, was kind of formed... In 1950, actually creating an alumni band association. And then in 1953, they actually had their first alumni band starting to join in for pregame and halftime. Wow. Also, Ravelli got in there at some... William Ravelli got in there at some point, and I didn't... I tried not to keep track of Ravelli, because I was like, we're going to get in a whole rabbit hole with Ravelli, but he does come up later. So I I at least want to mention that he... Yes, he was also a part of, of all of this. Um, starting in 1961, um, the symphony band recorded, um, a lot of records. Basically, this is when also, um, 
Mich- like Michigan's band started to really start to split out into kind of the modern band structure we see now. That's not, you know, what I call kind of the Notre Dame model where you have everyone in, in marching band all year, like during the first half of the year, and then you split out into concert ensembles during the spring semester. Basically, we're starting to split out into you always do concert, you always do pep, you always do, like, we're starting to see that specialization at that point. Women were allowed to join the marching band starting in 1972. Interestingly, um, in, tw- in 2007, um, after do- playing at the Rose Bowl, the Michigan Marching Band um, arrived at the funeral for uh, President um, Ford, uh, Gerald Ford, who was a Michigan graduate. Um, they honored him by playing um, playing the Victors. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, yep. that's a good way to honor him. Yep, because that's what he wanted. And also, just because we were band nerds who liked that, um, that was also the same year that Scott Borema uh, became director of the Marching Band. Okay. Yeah. Um, the band does um, a- aim to field roughly 400 members a year. The band is also open to all Michigan campuses, whether you're at Ann Arbor, Dearborn, or Flint. So you can, you're can you eligible to join. And it is the inaugural winner of the Sudler Trophy in 1982. Jeez. We may what, have... So what, what is that trophy? Oh, God. I was because not... I, I know people don't know what this is. So the Sudler Other than you. I am the only person who understands what the Sudler Trophy is and seems like I care. So the Sudler Trophy is a basically it is the highest honor given for marching band. Um basically it's kind of like almost like a it's people call it kind of like the Heisman of like like college like marching band. It's not really it's more like just congratulations. It's almost like a lifetime achievement award. No school can win it twice. Like, once you get it, basically you get the stamp of saying, hey, we see you. You're pretty awesome. The, the, the joke for those of you who obviously have not heard this, but every time we record an episode that has not made it into our actual publishing thing, this trophy has came up every single time. I, did. I, I, I do not understand why it's that big of a deal because nobody really ever talks about it. I I did some research. Um, buckle up, Buttercup. It's going to appear again in our first couple episodes. It seems like they just give it out to everyone. If we're being honest, well, but... they had to slow it down because they used to give it out every year. Now they gave it out give it out every two years because I think they realized eventually they are going to give it to everybody. Okay. <laughs> All right. Continue. Are you ready? Because it's time. For what? The Victors. Ooh. All right. I so, am so ready. So I will read from a resource anthology that I have um, called College Fight Songs, an Annotated Anthology by William E. Studwell and Bruce R. Schwenemann, um, available wherever books are resold because it is no longer in print. I'd like to, to start by reading the excerpt from in here. Um, okay. And, and um, I'd like you to just... Um, I'd like you to just listen and 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 uh, and keep a couple things in mind as we go. All right. So the Victors, University of Michigan, a very proud and stunning song, unforgettable when one hears it sung in the one hundred thousand plus seat stadium at Ann Arbor when the Wolverines of the University of Michigan play a home football game. The Victors is very possibly the best college song ever. Lewis Elbel, then a sophomore music major at the university, created this eighteen. 18- in 98 classic, reportedly the favorite college composition of the March King, John Philip Sousa. 
The same Sousa anecdote is also associated with the University of Wisconsin's On Wisconsin. Ironically, Elbel was raised and taught music at South in South Bend, Indiana, the home of another football power, the University of Notre Dame. All right, so again, another time where a story of Michigan's is found to be borrowed, possibly with another school. I love how nobody can confirm any of this stuff either. All right. So, from Wikipedia, regarding the victors, uh, Michigan students Louis Elbel um, wrote the song in 1898 after the football team's victory over the University of Chicago, which clinched an undefeated season in the we- and the Western Conference Championship. Remember, the Western Conference is the Big Ten. An abbreviated version of the song, based on its final refrain, is played at University of Michigan sporting um, events and functions. The victors is considered to be one of the greatest college fight songs ever written. Put a pin in that. Okay, this whole thing. Done. Re- remember these. Remember that. Uh, okay. It's, it's in my top three. So okay. It must no, 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 no. Remember the. Okay. Just. Okay. I'm right. buckling up. All right. All right. So the victors was written by uh, University of Michigan student Louis Albal in 1898, following that victory. Um, in the, it's like at, at the University of Chicago. So they went to Chicago for that. Um. Okay. After singing the um, standard, uh, there'll be a hot time in the old town tonight after the game, then considered to be the school's unofficial fight song, Elbow felt that the event should be dignified by something more elevating, for this was no ordinary victory. Elbow wrote the victors in the style of a military march on the train ride back to Ann Arbor. A student orchestra and Elbow made the first performance, public performance of the victors in 1899, April 5th. Um, during an on-campus undergraduate musical, it was received well with the audience requesting an encore. Three days later, in Ann Arbor, the song was performed during a concert by the United States by United States Marine Band leader and March King John Philip Sousa. Sousa held the song in high regard. No one but a master of counterpoint could have conceived the splendid harmony that marks the composition throughout. Think about all the praise the song is getting. Yeah. Just keep that in mind. Right now. Okay. Okay. There's so many confusing things happening, but okay. Okay. So after Michigan temporarily withdrew from the Big Ten, Western Conference, um, a new fight song, a new Michigan fight song, Varsity, was written um, in 1911 because the saw because the line "Champions of the West" was no longer applicable. So if you ever wondered why Michigan says um, "Hail the Champions of the West," that's why because it's the Western Conference. Um, when Michigan re-entered um, the conference in 1917, uh, followed um, by an undefeated season in 1918, the Victors was readopted as the primary fight song permanently. And as a, as kind of a coda to this whole thing, Elbel returned from Michigan's homecoming yearly to lead the band in playing the Victors until his death in 1959. In 1961, the Michigan band went on a world tour in 31 countries with the Victors as a selection that they decided to play. Okay. All right. So, due to, I think, what I'm going to reveal to Nick at the end of this pod, like, after this, I want us to talk about the song, knowing what the only what we know right now. Okay. Alright. So, are you ready for me to read the lyrics? So I am very ready to hear the right. lyrics. So, I, one of the things, uh, if you don't yes. know me, I love some fight song lyrics, so I will read us a, a dramatic reading of the lyrics from The Victors. Now for a cheer, here they are. Oh, my God. Now for a cheer, they are here, triumphant. 
Here they come with banners flying, and stalwart step they're nighing, with shouts of victory crying, we hurrah, hurrah, we greet you now, hail. Far we their praises sing, for the glory and fame they brought us. It's spelled B-R-O apostrophe T. Don't know how to say that. Um, loud let them bells ring. Nope. <laughs> this song is written so janked up. Loud let the bells them ring, for here they come with banners flying. Far we their praises tell, for the glory and fame they brought us. Loud let the bells them ring, for here they come with banners flying. Here they come. Hurrah. Hail to the victors valiant. Hail to the conquering heroes. Hail, hail to Michigan, the leaders and the best. Hail to the victors valiant. Hail to the conquering heroes. Hail, hail to Michigan, the champions of the West. We cheer them again. We cheer and cheer again. For Michigan, we cheer for Michigan. We cheer with might and main. We cheer, cheer, cheer. With might and main, we cheer. And then to end it, I will give an alternate set of lyrics that were discovered in the 1920s that have an unknown author. Um, everything else is presumed to be written by Elbel. Hail to our alma mater. Hail to our dear... Hail to dear old Ann Arbor. Hail, hail to Michigan, the Athens of the West. All right. So with that being said... Let's take a listen.
Well, it's quite quite rousing. It is. All right. Do you want to do you want to start? This was one of your top top songs. The wild thing about this is, I can almost guarantee you, ninety percent of the people who know this song only know the one part. That the whole uh, yeah, that was actually something that I'm debating, and I think you just sealed it for me there. I'm going to play the whole thing, like the whole two minutes yeah. of it. Um, it's, it's wild because the part everyone knows is 50 seconds or like a minute into the song, and there's no way that they're playing this whole song after every touchdown. But it's so cool. There's so many fun parts in it. Like your middle voices get so much to do. Even your lows. There's some really great like low low lines happening there. I was really it listening moves. to the tuba this time. Yeah, like this yes. time I was like really like oh, there's some real interesting. It's, it's tuba lines. is what it is. There's a lot of parts. There's also a lot of things happening at the same time. Yeah, which it's makes almost- it very exciting. You know, it's it's really interesting because it's really composed like an actual march, right? Like, like it's like it really, like composed like a like a concert piece. It is, which is very cool to hear and listen. But like I said, they're not using the whole thing ever. Like no. maybe their pregame. I would yeah. I, I I would assume their pregame. I pregame and maybe like if they're marching for something. Yeah, but, but that's I, also like two minutes. Like it, think about that for pregame time. Like. That's two minutes of pregame, like... Yeah, but I don't know when else you're using your full flight song. Like, no, you're, not, you're, you're not using it after touchdowns, I can tell you that. Yeah. I'm I'm really glad we picked but something... I do, that, but oh, I do the, really love this song. So, yeah. I'm really song. glad we picked something that follows the March format so closely to start off with. I'm, I'm really happy we got lucky this time. We um, did. Like, especially because, for me, one of the big ones is, you know... The like the piccolo obligato line like that's so much like especially for like Souza like so much like a defining you know trait there of like kind of the American march of having that kind of like that very high obligato line um in the in like the second like refrain usually of like the trio essentially um, yeah and this really does follow that first strain second strain trio break strain trio break strain final strain format I will also say that I can almost guarantee that not nobody really knows the lyrics to this other than the part they always hear. I know. I thought about editing around my mess-ups with the lyrics. I'm like, no, I want people to know that these are some janked-up lyrics. They're janked up, and again, nobody ever hears the other parts, so they don't know what to do with those other parts. Yeah. It's not easy to sing with the lyrics, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, it's not my favorite fight song. Like, it, like it, as far as it comes to song song, it's one of those ones where it's like, yes, as a history person who likes fight songs, you have to talk about the victors. Because I feel like this is one of those ones that raises the game of this is what it can be. Like, I prefer personally Buckeye Battlecry over the victors. But, you know, if you know my favorite fight song, well, I mean, I like, I like some trash. <laughs> I like some straight yes, trash. <laughs> Um, as far as it comes to the lyrics, as I think that the clearest one is the um, is that middle core is that chorus essentially, yep. and I think that's the most important. Like, I'm surprised how repetitive it is. Yeah, it is. Like the break strain repetitive. is so repetitive for lyrics. It is. Yeah, probably by design, but yeah. But there's a couple things that I did want to you know make sure that we mentioned before moving on to maybe some of the other stuff with Michigan. You know how we like the fight song, things like that. How how do we feel about the lyrics? I don't. I guess I don't mind them, but also, if I'm being honest, I don't hear them a whole lot. I very seldom ever hear anyone singing them, but that's also because I don't really hear that much. 
What do you think? I mean, I, I think personally they're fine. I mean, you know me, I'm so much like a lyrics guy, but yeah. I just kind of think they're clunky, maybe. like that, That's probably why nobody sings them, though, is because they're clunky, right? It definitely feels like it was written on the back of a train, and we did one pass at the lyrics, and we, we didn't go back. We, they didn't have time to go back. They got, they got other stuff to be doing. They're Michigan men. They've got, like... They've got the world to conquer. Um, I I do have to say, I think that the chorus of the song is great, but I, I just find the actual lyrics for, like, the verse very messy, and the break strain lyrics are, to say the least, uninspired, in my opinion. Yeah, I can, I can agree with that. I mean, like I said, as someone who doesn't usually hear it being sung much, it does not bother me as much as one would think. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. Yeah. So you hear that, Michigan fans? Maybe sing louder or sing more so I actually hear it. Maybe that. Maybe that's the solution. I I think it's funny because we just live in an area where there aren't many of them. Like, I I mean I I can remember the only Michigan fans I've ever seen. Well, like even for the national championship when they scored touchdowns, did you hear them singing? In all fairness, I was not watching that game. Well, I watched, like, parts of it. I was, like, doing something. I forget what. I don't know. I don't remember either, but... Me neither. I mean, like, any, any sporting event, though, do you ever hear them sing? Although, I, I guess you can put that out to any school, really. Yeah, I would I would chalk that up. But when you say like that, like, I think about the frozen face-off, and I'm like, no, the time that they beat Minnesota at at St. Paul for the Big 12, 10 Championship for hockey. No, but, like, no one was in the arena by that point. Yeah, everyone had left. <laughs> Still one of my favorite defeats ever in hockey. <laughs> one of the best, really. I, I still remember thinking about running and going. I remember we at a Buffalo Wild Wings and watching it happen on the Big 10 Network, and my friend and I looked at each other and I said, we should go. Like, they, they probably let us in if we just showed up. Like, it's like, we should go. We should just witness it. Nobody nobody would have stopped you from getting I, in at that point. I don't think anyone would have stopped. Because it, it was at the X. Yeah, like, it was at the Excel Center. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah they're not going to stop us. At that point, no. No. Not stopping us. Okay, so also one of the things with the Victors, given the fact that it's so popular and it's been around for so long... There have been some variant versions that have popped up, which is a little little rare for it. So I have some links, and we'll probably, you know, play it underneath, um, you know, like when we're actually talking about it. But the first one that I want to uh, just mention and give a shout-out to is El Victor's Caliente. Um, a version, yeah, of a Latin arrangement done by Scott Borama when he was the director of the band. Um, yeah, so go ahead and uh, go ahead and take a listen. What did they use that for? What did they use that for that 
require them to rate that? So it's just listed as because I'm I'm to be honest, I'll be completely transparent on y'all. I am just going off the Wikipedia version of this. Um, it seems like it's just a variant that they have on file. Um, I mean, it's very cool. It's very. I mean, it fits all your tropes of like Spanish Latin Latin Spanish music. I. I like it. Like I'm never sure. Yeah, when exactly you'd use it. So if you are a if you are a Michigan fan, please uh please let us know when you use that. Yeah. Um, also, I'm looking, and I should have done more research before this. I also see El Gato Caliente. I don't know by um, Victor Lopez. I don't know if they know each other, and I don't. I'd have to find out later if this is like a takeoff on that piece. It might be Victor Lopez is the composer who writes a lot of like. Stuff, so, maybe. so well, yeah, it wouldn't be surprise me if it was like a version that um, was created as kind of a shout out to uh, Victor Lopez. He does great work. He did. Remember, he did feel so good. The arrangement that we used. I know. Yeah. He does so much. Yeah. All right. So the so the next one I want to cover is the um, the health system victors. So this is a variant that was used. Um, Actually, and it's still as in use. Um, the University of Michigan Health System does some ad campaigns, you know, using actually some of the lyrics of the victors. And in 2008, they started, they made this version to specifically go along with the ad campaign. So take a listen. Okay. Yeah. I say about that one, uh, I don't like it as much as the El Victor's Caliente. It is fine. It's just not exciting, if you ask me. But that's not the point of that one, right? I, I know yeah. the point of that one, but I can, I can see it in a commercial, for sure. Like, obviously they use it. I just like the fact that a fight song has, like, a serious version. Yeah, I... It, it brings a little class to it, doesn't it? Yeah, and also that it very much is like a medical drama takeoff. Like, I can hear, like, the influence of, like, the ER, the- things like that, where I'm just kind of yes. like, I can hear the, the like... The pieces of uh, all the other songs that have similar, similar uh, thoughts to it. Exactly. All right, so we'll do the next one then. So the next one is the Calyptors. So this one is a variant that's... Um, just like a Calypso version. Again, I'm not positive what it's used for. Um, it's just there. It's in the books. like um st- I also like El Victor's Caliente yeah that's probably the top one so far but the book is probably not yeah 
I and, and then I liked how musically ignorant I was like, and I was just kind of like, they're this, those are the same things, right? And I was like, oh, that's bad on so many levels. I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm gonna get canceled for that one. You should be ashamed. I should. I know better. Um, okay, so the next one after that is I think maybe one of the older variations of something is a Hoover Street Rag. So this is a Dixieland version of um, the Victors. Um, again, not positive what it's used for, but it's there. And it's cool. Okay. Kind of. I couldn't find a fantastic quality recording of this one. I think it's the longest out of all of them, too. of using it for, like, a parade, too. Yeah. I think out of all of them, I think that it... What I really enjoy out of that one is I enjoy the, um, the rendition of the brake strain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very good. And you can hear a lot of the kind of, like, uh, Benny Goodman kind of, like, he, he is listening. <laughs> this is gonna seem embarrassing. He did Sing Sing Sing, right? Yes, he played at this one. Okay. Who composed it? Now I feel dumb. Me neither. Things I could look up, even though we have a computer right here. Um, okay. So the last one I wanted to show off, too, was um, called Victor's Valiant. This one is just kind of a... What it makes me think of is, like, if it was, like, a movie, like, this is the big damn heroes moment. Like, we won. It's, we've been victorious. I'm going to assume that they play this kind of, like, post-game as they transition into, like, post-game stuff after a victory. Um, again, if I am wrong on that, please tell me, but this is Victor's Valiant. See, like you said, possibly using it in the game. I don't know what else you'd really want to use that one for necessarily. What I love about that is that is the most marching band end ever to a piece. It has like the most, like what I even say, it's like the most stereotypical marching band ending. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It is very stereotypical. It is a show closer for the ending. It is all of the tropes of a show closer. Your percussion hits, your kind of your big block chords at the end. It's got your everything you need to be a successful end. A restatement of your main theme and continuing to change the key and make it even more major. It somehow is getting more major. I don't know how. It just does. It just does. But yeah, I'm... Oh, go ahead. So let me ask this, because I'm curious. You were pretty adamant about how you felt about their fight song. Does all these variations affect how you feel? Well, and I think it actually brings me into my next thing I want to talk about, too. So, 
one of the things is that I think when I know when I initially listened to the first fight song, like the, and like the main version of it, how do you talk about something that's so iconic? And like, how do you effectively analyze a legend, right? Like, how do you effectively talk about a song that people have talked about for 120 years? Yeah. I mean, uh, one, one of the options is you don't, right? Like, yes, you just avoid it. You just avoid it. I mean, I guess how I feel is ab- about this is that the variants for me help me kind of see it more as a musician and to help me kind of see the bones of the song, right? Like to actually see kind of the skeletal structure to be like, okay, what, how much can you change it with it with, before it breaks, right? And I think that most fight songs aren't particularly durable. Um, yeah, I, and, I, would, I would agree with that. A lot of them, I don't think I'd want to hear. Well... And we'll we'll talk about it in a moment, but I might I might argue that there's a point about that because maybe there's a little bit more of a uh, a concert origin to the song um, there. But I mean, I think as far as it comes to how does it make me feel about the victors period? Yeah, does, does it redeem? Does it redeem the victors for you at all? Okay, so point. This is going to come before the authorship stuff. Um, oh. Well, never mind then. <laughs> so that's why I'm trying to hint that we're talking about yeah. that before. Um, yeah. So rephrase your question. Well, now I don't have a question. <laughs> well, it's do, does this does this make you does this change your opinion? Just phrase it more neutrally. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. well, does it does this change your opinion of the victors? In any way? I think we have enough there. I think we can cut around it. <laughs> I think it'll be fine. Um, how about this? Um, it makes me. It makes me understand maybe the appreciation around it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think then I hear like variations of it. It it just tells me how much real estate it's taking up in people's heads, right? Like, yeah. do you, and I think I hate that I phrase, mean, but I, I yeah. In any way, shape, or form, all the time. I mean, that's five different versions, and that's five different versions I managed to track down in about like twenty-four hours. Yeah, I mean, I think it says something about the song for sure. I think so too. Yeah, but it, it's popular enough that people want to hear other versions of it too. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's something that other fight songs. As cool as they are, don't get. I mean, I have to give props to Michigan for that one at least. They've they've created a very sound, a very strong sonic brand. Um, it, it's once you hear that tune, you know exactly what it is. Yeah, again, which is troubling to me for a couple other reasons. All right, so we we've talked about the fight song in isolation right here. Mm-hmm. How would you like to do this next part, then? Do you want me to tell you why I want you to listen to this, or do you want to check out that second link that I sent you? Up to you. What, what's going to make? What's going to give us the best reaction? I think I want to have you listen to the second link. Okay. You might. We might need to listen to it a couple times, so make sure to not close that window. All right. Just and listen to the whole thing. Okay. Hold on. It's loading.
question. Um, which came first? Let's talk about the disputed authorship of the victors. In 1983, Michigan marching band alumnus George Anderson found that the tree, that the song's trio bore a strong resemblance to George Rosenberg's The Spirit of Liberty March, which was in, copyrighted in 1898. Former band alumni president, President Joseph, uh, former UM band alumni president Joseph Dobos, considered Elbow the only author, from which he received a report from Bill Studwell, author of College Fight Songs, an annotated anthology, as many composers borrowed from each other. Dobos also wrote the Did Lewis Elbow Write the Victor's Essay for the band alumni publication M. Fan for a Fall 2007 issue, indicating that Victor's was more tightly composed than Spirit and was a circus march while Spirit was a two-step. Okay. I'm just going to say it. Yeah. All of that is a bunch of hot bullshit. Okay, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take all these parts first. So so okay, Dobos. That doesn't actually make sense. The difference no, is between doesn't. a two step is is a dance. Like like mm-hmm. a circus march. It this isn't even a circus march. Like this is no. a very very like like again, Rolling Thunder, Americans We, Orange Bowl. Those are circus marches, and they have actually very set. Basically, yeah. you go straight into trio, into final straight. Like, it is a very set way to be written. Fillmore, if you're curious about marches, Henry Fillmore is a great writer of circus marches. Um, yes. Like, and if you really want to hear what a circus march sounds like, look at anything by Fillmore. It, they they sound different. The, no! It's plagiarized! Yes, it is clearly plagiarized, which is wild, as so, well so, known as it's written. So here is the article that is written that claims to exonerate them, right? The the article by Joseph Dobos, and it is a completely tie. There is a timeline essentially of when everything went down. So here here is why Michigan is full of shit when they say that Albol was the only person that wrote this song. Okay, so I'm going to start with. So I'm reading directly from. This volume 70, issue 3, I will have a link to it so you can see I'm not just full of crap either. All right. So in 18, as 18, so 1981, Rich Alder and I visited with band alumnus George Anderson. George was a student manager of the Michigan band during the time of the years tr- from transition from Nicholas Falcone to, really, uh, to William Ravelli. We wanted to know more about that critical time in Michigan band history. During our conversation, George said something to the effect of, you know, Louis Elbel did not write the victors. George explained that the trio of victors is nearly identical to a march that was written and published one year before the famous football game that inspired Elbel to write his march. The march he referred to was the Spirit of Liberty March by George Rosie or Rosenberg. Rich and I cannot wait to meet with Dr. Ravelli to ask if, if he knew about that, um, if they knew about the Spirit of Liberty March. When we asked him, he replied, oh, yes. He acted like if this was old news. He opened a drawer of his desk and pulled out the music to Spirit of Liberty. And there it was. The spirit, the trio of Spirit of Liberty is our victors. Ravelli explained that somewhere, somehow, Albo must have heard George Rosie's march and used and used this tune in his victors. Okay. So here's here's why I take a lot of issue with this. Other than the fact one of the most well known songs is the ripoff. But it's not kind of Hold on. We all hear that, don't Okay, everyone heard Cheddar? Yes. Great. All right. Um, I mean, as far as it comes to... um, Fight songs do borrow popular melodies. That's not a secret, right? 
step to the rear. The fight in Gengkos lead the way. It is bar for that. But the thing is, they 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 put down who wrote the music. They they give authorship to who wrote the music. The problem is that the mythology of what people tell about the song, it is only Elder's work. It's completely yeah. incorrect. Yes, it is. I don't I don't give a crap if if Rosenberg wrote the trio and you embellished the trio. That's fine. You did a great job. You did, you did. a fantastic but the fact job. You give complete credit to You cannot give complete credit to this guy. Alright, so timeline. As far as it comes to this, important parts of the timeline with this one. All right. George Rosenberg um, composed and published The Spirit of Liberty, uh, March and Two-Step as a piano stole, 1898. Um, the application for copyright was submitted eight, April 11th, 1898. Um, two copies of the piano solo were sold April 20, um, 26, 1898. I like how in there it says, note the trio. Soon, a band arrangement with Spiritual Liberty was, was made by George Weigand and published by Joseph Stern. Um, during the Civil War, um, he's an influential guy. Weigand also played viola in the Theodore Thomas Orchestra of Chicago. Again, it's in Chicago. Spirit of Liberty was performed in San Francisco by the Boston Lee Orchestra by June 1898. In a short time, Rosie's March was on both coasts and in Chicago. Spirit of, it's like, okay, October 27th, 1898, the Spirit of Liberty was performed in Chicago um, by the 1st Regiment Band. My God, this is where I start getting real pissed, right here. All right, so 1898, so this is a month afterwards, the game happens. Yeah. As far as it comes, as like, as far as it comes to that, after the post game, it's okay. So this is where I start getting real irritated. And this is this is the this is the lore essentially. Yeah. After the post game celebration, as Lewis Elbel walked to his sister's house in Hyde Park, he began thinking that Michigan didn't have the right celebration song that night. To his reasoning, Michigan needed a fitting paean, a clarion call, something grand, uh, something simple but grand and heroic, something to let out out on. Along the way, Elbel claimed that his walk turned into a march. Elbow later recalled that a band got to sing in my head, a sort of victory sound. And right then, the refrain of the victors came to me. Not only the music, but the words. When he arrived at his sister's house, he wrote down the notes of the tune that the band in his head was singing. The next day, Elbow went to his parents' home in his hometown of South Bend, and there he tried out the song on the piano and finished the entire refrain. Yeah. Oh, and here's here's the kicker. And this is one that people have tried to lay on for a long time. This refrain, which would, which would become the trio of the Victor's March, was nearly identical to George Rosie's Spirit of Liberty March, the difference being in the final phrase. Yeah. And even then, not that much different. You can still no. sing the Michigan fight song to yeah. Spirit of Liberty. Um, in the book... In his book, Heritage of Encyclopedia of Band Music, William Arch Rerig claimed that Elby and Rosie were, quote, reported to be good friends, and this arrangement was presumably made by mutual agreement. This assertion was refuted by Louis Elbel's nephew, Fred, who wrote, I am sure my uncle did not know him or about him, visually, verbally, or orally. I hadn't either. Since the publication of his book, Rerig has agreed that his initial claim should be corrected. Mm. As a kind of a as kind of a sad coda to that, um, Rosenberg passed away. I want to double check that. Passed away in 1936. 
It is not known if George Rosie had ever heard or known about Elwell's March. The popularity of the victors was mostly confined to the Midwest at that time. Mm. Wow. How does that make you feel? It's a little surprising. It kind of, like, I still love the song, the fight song. Just makes me realize they have a history of cheating and stealing. Yeah, I mean, I think what made me more irritated, because initially when I wrote that, I was like, huh, that's interesting. I'm sure it's a mistake, like, when I wrote that. But no, this is this is what anyone would consider to be out-and-out out plagiarism. Yes, like, yes, they would. Like, I mean, I, I and, and that's one of the things, like, people say, like, oh, well, t- copyright law was different at that time. It's like, not that much different. Like, no, it's pretty similar. Like, not that much different. I mean, I think what, what, what gets me about it is that Michigan so unabashedly claims this to be their their invention, their yeah. their thing, when it is yeah. so very clearly borrowed. Like, I, okay. Yeah. Well, one of the things that gets me upset, too, is the YouTube link that we use for, for this fight, for this, for the Spirit of Liberty March has, I think, what, 9,000 views? No, less than that. 6.8K. So, like, 6,800 views. The combined versions of the victors have over 2 million. It's because it's so well known. Nobody it else is. But you don't give, need to know the march, apparently. But give him some credit. Yeah, but the, the, the thing is, like, not that you shouldn't give him credit, but how many people are just looking up Michigan fight song? And, and, I, and I agree with that. I, I agree yes. with that. Like, how That's many people actually is. know, right? Like, how many people actually know? But the and thing, I think what it is from the Michigan standpoint is they bet on people not really caring. And I mean, I guess I care. Like, I care yes. for I'm sure there are plenty of people who care, but I think they figure a vast majority of people would not care nor worry about that. Which but is why they probably don't give credit, which is terrible, but... But that's what's really upsetting to me, because this is easily the the most famous fight song. Yep. And the person that wrote it, essentially, and did most of the legwork in actually writing it, died and has received no credit for it. Yep. That's incredibly upsetting to me. It is. And so. And I mean... I, and I mean, I guess it's upsetting to me because re- Michigan, especially as I look through their stuff, has such a revisionist history of just even the smallest things. Like, who made up the panty rate? We yes. did. Like, like, uh, like, or when did our school get founded? Not when they, not when the state of Michigan said it was founded. No. Like, they make I mean, it up. I mean, that's what's upsetting. And I mean, I, I so we're also recording this for, for evergreen purposes. Um, a month after Michigan won the national football championship with, under the veil of a giant cheating scandal, a, a giant sign stealing scandal, which is still basically yet to be resolved and will most will most likely end with Jim Harbaugh leaving Michigan to go to an NFL team because there are still NCAA punishments that are, as of this recording, not revealed. So... I mean, that's where I'm just like, it is It is something that is endemic to the University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's upsetting. It is. Because that's their MO at this point. That's all yeah. they do. Well, and that's where it's like, is it cheating or is it revisionist? And I guess that the best thing to say is it's revisionist. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's basically saying what you saw and what you thought happened didn't happen. And I mean... 
the problem is that there there will be nothing that ever basically you can say that said, yeah, Elbel knowingly plagiarized this song. Yeah. Right. Like, and I mean, I think that's one of the biggest things where I do want to be careful about saying that. It. I. I can't ever say that Elbel very clearly knew what he was doing, got a score, but he didn't just make this up on the back of a train, mm-hmm. like, and, which is the story basically. Yeah. Like he didn't make this up on the back of the train. He very clearly at some point heard this march, most likely during his time in Chicago, um, during that weekend, because it would probably would have been known by a band if they were playing there, and yeah. heard it liked it and lifted it yes exactly yeah Hmm. really makes you think doesn't it just like I don't know it kind of changes perspective on it although I will say it still is probably my top three fight songs for me actually this did kind of change my opinion on it and I don't like it's one of those things where I don't want to give him credit anymore like yeah. it'd be it'd be great to i mean because one mean, of the compliments that i gave was you know oh this is such a great version of march format guess why because it was a fucking march yeah although let's be real do we ever really give a lot of credit to people who write the fight songs no we don't and that's why we're here right i mean mm-hmm. so so basically i guess with mine all i'm asking is just justice for rosie you know, if it's like, just remember that while Lewis Elbel did write all of your insane lyrics to the victors, George Rosie did most of the work actually writing your melody. Yeah. Now, I will say, Elbel did put in all the fun bells and whistles. Not even going to lie about that one. But the core of what is considered, which I actually would even say is sometimes even the most important part, the core of that fight song is George Rosie's. And yeah. Michigan fans, Michigan supporters, y'all need to acknowledge that. Give that man some credit. That's all I ask. And also, so, you guys so, you guys didn't do that one by yourself. You needed some help, and that's okay. So what kind of a rating would you give it? Ooh. I, I, I personally would give it a 9 out of 10 still. Just because, just, be, just because of how, like, difficult or it sounds, or, like, like, how interesting it is, right? There's a lot of interesting parts. There's a lot of moving pieces of this fight song, and it's iconic. So I will put it at a nine for me personally. I think that's fair. I I think for me it's a seven, um, and I and it's and I think part of it is because I am letting my feelings about the plagiarism get in the way, mm-hmm. but I also really want to honor the fact of yeah, it's it's a it's it's an iconic fight song. I will knock it for lyrics though. I think that they need to get cleaned up. I think that a lot of it, especially to modern ears, doesn't hit right and doesn't sit right in the mm-hmm. palette as evidenced by me struggling to read through the fight song lyrics. Um, I mean, nobody, nobody sings it. So that's well, and that's where it's like, I'm struggling to go through the, the part that no one sings. Um, yeah. Well, that's why, because nobody bothers <laughs> to sing it. They cut yeah, it out. But, but I mean, seven, I, I feel comfortable saying seven. Um, okay. Like, and, and it's, and mainly just because it's definitely one of the most important steps forward in fight song stuff, but I I just think that plagiarism. it's I, I just can't get over the plagiarism and the unabashed plagiarism too, like okay. that's what that's what upsets me, and and we'll definitely talk about other fight songs that have borrowed their melodies from other fight songs or other schools and things like that, and we'll we'll talk about why that's why those situations sit a little better with me, 
mainly it just become it comes down to giving credit where credit's due. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this is a weird one to end on because I'm like I'm still very worked up about it. Like, like yeah. I even said, this is probably one of one of the more upsetting researches I've done because, th- well, there's nothing that gets to me more than taking other people's work and claiming it for your own. Yeah, I can feel that. As I as I actively have read large slots from Wikipedia, so I will make sure to credit Wikipedia and its asso- associated sources properly. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I think does that does that do it for the first fight song? Hell of a first one. Yeah, that's one down, three hundred something to go. Yeah, and most of them are all the same and slightly plagiarized too. Um, Do you have a teaser for what's coming next? I do. All right. So clear the palette. All right. So for next week's episode, aside from being the oldest operating and largest university in its state, as claimed by the school and verified through mascotdb.com, no other college in the United States uses this mascot except for this university in the upper Midwest. Some high schools do, but no other college does. I wonder what that could be. I I, I would guess that two, three handful of listeners will probably get it. How about this? If you how about this? If you got our hint about this university, you'll probably be one of the people to figure out the hint of the other one. And also, if you can see the pattern of what we're trying to do, it might be a little bit more obvious. Wait, there's a pattern to this. There's a slight pattern in the first season about how we're handling schools. Wow, I did not know that. Well, it'll definitely be obvious next week. Maybe I should show up to our meetings. It would be nice. I, the, the Zoom call was so lonely without you. Did you go through the presentation still? Yeah, I did. I it, it, I, I just got to stay sharp, you know? Like, okay, good. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Well, I think this has been a troubled emotional journey this week. Um, hopefully the next couple of weeks are going to be at least a little smooth. Oh God. I know one of the things I'm going to have a little bit of a breakdown while we do it too. Um, might be a staple of our show now. It might be a staple of our show of yeah. Eli getting real mad about stuff. Um, <laughs> but until we meet again next week, uh, this is Eli. And this is Nick. And we are on a journey to still to find out if we hate your fight song. Thanks for joining us. We Hate Your Fight Song is a Mocha Grande Productions podcast project. Make sure to check out the liner notes for each episode and more fun facts and links related to our topic of the day and for our current social media accounts. We are also an independent podcast, so please write a review, rate our podcast, and subscribe. Under Section 107 of the Copyright Act 1976, allowances made for fair use for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. And remember, we love you, fellow band kids and sports nerds. As much as we might razz you, we're all part of the same family.